Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, the director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Kristen Bell, assistant professor in the University of Oregon School of Law. See, she is also an affiliated faculty member in philosophy. Bell was a senior Lyman fellow and lecturer at Yale Law School from 2016 to 2018, and a Soros Justice Fellow with the University of Southern California's Post-Conviction Justice Project from 2014 to 2016. Bell will be a 2021-2022 Oregon Humanities Center's Faculty Research Fellow. Her book project is Philosophy of Punishment Behind Bars. Thanks, Kristen, for coming on the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. So your trajectory to becoming a professor of law is a somewhat unusual one. Would you tell us a little bit about that journey? Sure. Yeah, so when I, I started out, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know I wanted to be a law professor at all. Um, I had really two interests coming out of college. One was philosophy and um, the other was uh, being an, an activist, um, particularly in regard to abolition of the death penalty. And um, I uh, decided to get my PhD in philosophy and philosophy of law in particular. Um, so I just, I love philosophy and it's a wonderful discipline of thought. And um, while I was doing that, I actually, I also um, started uh, teaching a little philosophy group at um, the juvenile detention center where I was, I was at UNC Chapel Hill. So it was um, a juvenile detention center in North Carolina and um, we uh, and myself and other graduate students taught philosophy there with a small group of kids. And um, I loved that work. And I learned so much from those, the, the boys that I was teaching. And um, the more I learned about law and understood um, the way the system of criminal law works in the United States, I, I didn't, um, I, I didn't feel great about just thinking and, um, theorizing about the nature of law and of punishment and of mercy. I really, I thought yeah, there's so much work to be done. Um, and so I, I knew I also had an interest in, in practicing as an advocate. And so I decided to go to law school really to practice law um, to help get people out of prison or serving long sentences or to um, be a death penalty defense attorney. I also had an interest in being a prosecutor. Um, and I got to law school and then I practiced law for a very short period of time. <laughs> um, I was a clerk at the Massachusetts Supreme Court, which was a great, great job. Um, and then I, I worked um, as a fellow uh, representing people who got a life sentence when they were kids. Um, and I really enjoyed that work. Um, and then it was, uh, practicing law is incredibly hard and um, I have my hat off to the folks who do do that work, especially post-conviction work, um, death penalty defense work or representing people who have, who have life sentences. It's very, um, it's very depressing work. Um, it's very emotionally fulfilling, but it was really difficult for me. Um, and I realized, hey, I have this other passion um, in academia and the kinds of problems that I saw arising in case after case, you sort of see there are, there's a lot of systemic 
a need for systemic reform. And I thought, you know, I can um, try to um, work toward the reform that I want to see on a, on a large a sort of more systemic level with research and writing and teaching. Um, and it would be a better fit for me personally than doing all of the cases all the time. Um, so I, and it brought me here. <laughs> so you've just mentioned that, you know, you've, you've become aware of these systemic problems in the criminal justice system. And given your particular interest in juvenile uh, sentencing and in, in the death penalty, um, what are some of those systemic problems that you see and how does your how does your research address them or attempt to address them? Mm. The problems are easier to explain than how my research addresses them but um, I think uh, well I think a story is a good example of this so when um, when I was doing the, the work in California with people who got a life sentence when they were when they were kids um, one of the the things that um, in Cal I learned about California, there are about 4,000 people who got a life with or without the possibility of parole sentence in California, just in California, that I, I had no idea 4,000 was an incredibly large number of kids to be locked up for life. Um, and uh, they passed a law in California in 2013 to, that would affect all those 4,000 um, and, and give them an opportunity for parole after they've served 15, 20 or 25 years. Um, and part of what my job was, was to do education in prison on how to prepare for parole hearings um, and research how the law was working and represent some people or help them get legal representation for their parole hearings. And the biggest part of that work that really, um, that, that I, I learned the most from actually was doing that education in prison to help people prepare for parole. So I started a group called, um, a group of, in the prison that was near, most near Los Angeles where I was based, um, a group of 25 guys who got a life sentence when they were under 18. And um, I had received some letters from that prison um, guys telling me, you know, we know we're eligible for parole now, but we don't know how that works. And we know we need to do rehabilitation and programs to get paroled. But um, on that prison yard at that time, they the only program that they said they had was um, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. And there was a wait list for that. And if you weren't on the wait list, there was nothing to do. Um, and I was, I was shocked by that, both by the fact that there were so many people just on that one prison yard serving that life sentence for crimes they did as, a, as under 18, and also that they just had nothing in prison to grow. Um, and so I started, a, a helped them start a group on their own. I didn't know um, exactly what, I didn't have like a curriculum that I developed to sit out and, and teach at first. I had received some really good advice from someone that said, you know, um, often we think we know what people who are incarcerated need and we um, then try to devise it and give it to them. Um, and she encouraged me to instead think about how could um, I help empower them um, 
for them to take the lead over their own group and figure out what it would be that would um, help them grow. And so I, it was hard for me as a control freak to take that advice, but I went in with that idea of, okay, I'm gonna have them form their own group and think of the goals that they wanna work through and support them in that. And um, so they called themselves the Young Group Youth Offenders United in Growth. Um, and there are a couple things about that that really struck me from that, the question that you asked the systemic needs. So of this group that was just um, sort of the people on that prison yard who had a life sentence as kids, um, there wasn't a single white person. Um, they were black and Latino and two Asian. Um, and almost all of them had been horrifically abused as children. Um, and almost all of them also believed um, what a judge or someone else had told them when they received their sentence, which was, you're a monster. Several of them told me that. That was the last thing they heard from society when they got sentenced was, you're a monster. Um, and I remember the, some of the first sort of teaching I did about this youth offender parole law was I said, you know, there's this, this brain science about young kids and young adolescents when you're 14, 15, 16, 17, actually all the way up to 24. But um, especially in those younger years, your brain is still developing. You're more likely to take risks. You're more likely to be influenced by peers. You're more likely to be influenced by your environment. And so um, people think you should get a second chance because that's not necessarily who you are when you're 15 isn't who you're going to be for the rest of your life. And I just remember a couple of the guys in the group were like, this was news. This is something that I think I've taken for granted. Um, I think a lot of people take that for granted, but this was really news. Um, wait a minute, I'm not horrible. I, I could be someone else. Um, I, I'm not to be condemned for who I was when I was 15, that that was news. Um, and it felt um, quite incredible to be the person who was bringing that message. Um, but it, it, it really struck me how much this, the system of being um, prosecuted and sentenced in, under mandatory sentencing laws and without any consideration of their environment had done um, to their perception of themselves. Um, and that's, that's one of those systemic things that's really hard to address with a change in, in any particular law, right? Um, but you sort of see, well, if the, um, if our, our system of criminal law is solely focused on, you know, you do this crime, you get this amount of time, it misses. And then when you do the time, you do nothing other than sit there in your prison bed and get warehoused effectively. Um, that they're totally stripped of their, of their humanity um, and a sense of self and of purpose um, and of connection. And um, I kind of knew that intellectually um, but I think it was, it was only in working with the, these guys that I really came to appreciate it um, in a meaningful way. And, and that's not something that you can address with the, you know, any particular case or change in a particular law or something like that. Um, I think to change that large issue is really a battle for hearts and minds to get people to care 
um, about what happens to people who commit crime, serious crime, um, and go to prison. So I, I'm not, again, I'm not sure I can tell you how my research is going to address it. I, I, <laughs> I, hope, I hope maybe in 50 years I have a really good answer for you, but. Um, well, I know that you, you've written about a reparative, a reparative approach to parole release decisions. So will you tell us what that is and, and, and why you've come to that, uh, advocating for that? Sure. Um, so I guess there's two strands of thought. One is that the way the current, I think it, it helps to explain how the current parole process works a bit first. Um, so it depends a lot on the state. Um, the, there's no sort of gold standard for the way that parole works, at least in the United States, because the federal government abolished their parole system um, in the in the 80s and 90s, and um, every state does it a bit differently. So I know a lot about the California parole system, um, and one thing that's important in that system, and is I think reflective in most other systems, is a person will serve I don't know, say 20 years in prison. Um, and they're not told a lot about what they have to do to get granted parole. Um, and they go to the hearing and at the hearing, the board looks at their crime about what, how they talk about their crime. It's called their insight into the crime, taking responsibility and that sort of thing. Um, and what they've done in prison, what programs they've done, um, if they've gotten in trouble, what a psychologist has to say about them, all these different kinds of things. And um, the, the decision's really discretionary, meaning that you know you might get granted, you might not get granted. It's pretty hard to predict. Um, There's certain things that that definitely take a person out of contention. You know, if you commit a pretty a stabbing the week before your parole hearing, you're not going to get granted parole. Um, but um, other than the things that definitively take you out of contention, it is really hard to say. And um, I think that that um, fact that the board has that much discretion, that it's really hard to be able to predict the decision, um, makes it really hard for a person to really grow in prison um, because they don't know what it is I'm supposed to do um, in order to show that I'm ready to go home to sort of um, to sort of earn my way back to the community. Um, and I was really. I was really sort of struck by the idea I had. I taught a guy in a class at St. Quentin when I was in law school who, um, who made this really good point. He didn't have a parole eligible sentence. He just had a certain number of years he had to serve. He went home at the end of that period or um, everyone else in the class had to get granted through the parole board. They weren't gonna go home unless the parole board said they could go home and um, they, all had a lot of gripes with the parole board and um, the parole board had a lot of problems, but um, the guy who didn't have a parole eligible sentence, who just had a set amount of time to serve, said, you know, um, I'm really, I know you guys don't like the parole board, but I'm really kind of jealous of this opportunity to show that I've made my, that I've done everything I can to get back to my family as soon as I could. He really wanted to show his daughter actually that he had done everything he could in prison to make it back to her as soon as he could and to have that sort of um signal that I, that I've really tried in here um and and so that I, I remember hearing that and then thinking about how discretionary the parole system is and I thought you know 
I think what would be better is if a person had a set program that they had to do at the start of their prison sentence. You know, it, it, it could be dependent on their on their their crime or or their needs when they're coming in, but it could be a certain kind of job training. It could be a certain kind of um, educational program. It could be a therapeutic program. It could be um, uh, communication skills, all different kinds of things that a person might, might need or benefit from. Um, and then a person could do that program. And then the parole decision at the end of the term would be really just about whether they did the things they were asked to do rather than having a person do what they're gonna do and then at the end, give them the thumbs up or the thumbs down. <laughs> um, and so I sort of call it that idea of getting the, the plan at the start and working through it and then being able to show that you've sort of earned your way out as a way to, to, to um, show an effort toward repairing the harm that you've caused um, and also as a way of sort of restoring the, the, um, the dignity of the person who is incarcerated during that time in prison, um, that they have a purpose, um, that they know if they do what they're asked, they'll, they'll get granted and if they don't, they won't, that they're, um, there's a direct link between what they do and how they're treated. Um, so that's, I don't, that's not a great explanation, but um, to start. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's a it's really helpful and interesting. Um, you've just been talking about you know an, a, a way of making clear to incarcerated people what they need to do in order to get parole and being transparent about that. You've also been interested in in this question of parole boards and how parole boards work. And you have a recent article where you introduce a concept called a recon approach to the use of machine learning in the criminal law. Um, you, you explain in that that machine learning has been used sort of to predict whether certain kinds of people will commit crimes or what their likelihood of recidivism, for example. But you, in this article, you and your, your co-authors, you propose a very different way to use machine learning. Will you tell us about that? Yeah. Um... It's a new project where we've been working on for, for a while. My collaborators are computer scientists and um, we, we started this project thinking, how can we use machine learning to make the parole system better? And like, like you said, a lot of the use of machine learning out there, almost all of it in criminal law is to predict what uh, a person who's in the system will do in the future. And we started thinking, you know, what could we do to, so you, you sort of try to identify a high risk offender um, or a low risk offender, um, meaning low risk that they'll offend in the future. And, um, and we thought, what, what would it look like to try to instead think about what it is um, to identify a decision-making context to be able to say, hey, that in this context, this is gonna be a really high risk that maybe racial bias is entering this decision. Um, or um, how can we tell whether racial bias is infecting a discretionary decision process. Um, and, and so the, the work is designed to really describe the decision makers, to sort of focus the object of the research not on the people going through the system, but on the people who make the decisions. Um, and 
um, trying to figure out how is it that they're making their decisions? When are they more likely to um, be consistent? Um, and when are they more likely to be inconsistent? And, and so it has really two features. Um, we call it the recon approach, where recon has two meanings. One is reconnaissance. Um, so really trying to describe how the decision-making process works. Um, so you're just sort of laying out a map of how the decision-makers are working. And um, you might say sort of holding up a mirror to the decision makers to say, you know, you see one case at a time, but we're gonna show you like what patterns there might be in your decisions over time. So findings might be, and I had done a project like this um, in a much smaller set of parole hearings um, in an earlier article, uh, but you'd be looking for things like, okay, so um, if we, control for a person, how many times a person's been written up for misconduct, how many times a person, or how many programs a person has done. Um, so effectively the things that a person has control over. Um, what's the difference in the grant rate between uh, black parole candidates and white parole candidates? Or um, if you have a, if the person has a private attorney as opposed to a publicly appointed attorney and they've served twice as long for their crime as other people who committed the similar crime, um, what's the difference in that in, um, in the grant rate for those who had that private attorney compared to the retained attorney? There's lots of different questions you could ask and answer about these sorts of patterns. And the idea in doing the reconnaissance is really to allow a legislature or um, a governor who might be in charge of the parole board or an oversight board to really see how their decision makers are performing. And the hope is, you know, there aren't any bad patterns. Um, and um, if there are, then you have a way of seeing what those systemic issues are that you can craft reforms to address them. So that's the reconnaissance sort of piece. The other meaning of recon is um, a process of what we call reconsideration. And so um, instead of um, thinking about the decision-making process as a whole, here we're sort of looking at a really individual decision and saying, um, was this particular decision consistent with other decisions where you hold constant certain case factors that you really think should make a difference. Um, and if someone is an outlier, like if everyone, okay, an example, I think it helps, but suppose it were the case that if you have served over 25 years for a second degree murder conviction, if you have not been written up for any misconduct in the last five years, if you've done over 25 different programs um, and the psychologist says, does, and their evaluation says you're a low risk of violence, suppose it were the case that holding all those, those four things constant, people who had those factors at 95% of them were granted. Then you'd wanna ask, what about those 5%? Um, let's take a closer look at those cases. And the idea would be to, to flag those kinds of cases as anomalies 
so that they could be reconsidered by the decision makers. So you could say like, hey, you could you denied these guys, but why don't you take a second look? Because based on the other decisions that you've made, it looks like these guys probably should have been granted. Um, and so the idea is to not just look at the, the sort of decision making as a as a whole and think of what are the systemic issues that need fixing going forward. It's also um, in the meantime, before you fix those systemic issues, um, some people got the short end of the stick here um, and they deserve another chance at a decision. And so it's not that we would be flagging them and saying these people should just be released. It would be a flag to the decision maker to go back and look and see, oh, actually maybe I would change my decision here or not. It's sort of similar if you were a professor doing grading and you noticed, um, I don't know if you had like three different um, graduate students helping you doing the grading and you look at the curves and, and one of them is a heck of a lot lower than the other two, right? You might say, okay, let's <laughs> have this batch looked at again. Um, and a lot of the grades might still say the same. It's possible that they just, you know, for whatever reason, there's something going on in that stack that makes them less, less good exams. It's possible. The thought is just, um, we, want, we want to use the technology to help us kind of I, um, prioritize cases that really should get a second look. So you will be a... Uh... 2021-2022 Oregon Humanities Center Research Fellow. And your project for your fellowship term is called The Philosophy of Punishment Behind Bars. Would you tell us a little bit about that project? Sure, so um, the project as I've conceived it um, has been really to build on that group that I talked about just at the start. The, um, the young group that I taught in the prison in Los Angeles was a group of people who got a life sentence when they were kids. And um, I sure as heck learned a lot from them. Um, and one of the exercises that we had done in that group was um, to think about some different concepts and they did some sort of free writing about how they would define something like dignity or how they would define something like mercy. Um, and so the project for the book is to um, really develop that, that what we kind of started there um, and invite um, some of the people that I've worked with in the past who are, who are still in prison to write more about that, expand on those thoughts. And so there'd be sort of a chapter about dignity where I would write an introduction that sort of says, here's what the old philosophers have said about this. <laughs> here's a sort of state of the literature and contemporary philosophy. Um, and, and now we're gonna see how, um, how it interacts with or how it differs or what similar strands we see um, uh, with writings from, from people who are incarcerated who are thinking about those same topics, but um, coming at them from a very different place because um, most contemporary philosophers are coming from a place of, of great privilege. Um, and the way that we think about these kinds of concepts has, has always been accompanied by that. Um, and, and so I, I've learned a lot about um, how getting, asking the same question in different ways and among different groups of people really invites different, not just different answers, but different ways of asking a question 
um, that I think can be both that that can be enlightening for everyone. Um, and for the reader and the audience, I think can also help um, help facilitate seeing people who are incarcerated really as as great thinkers. Um, and uh, I've cer I've certainly seen that. And um, I know that the folks who teach in the Inside Out program, Oregon has a great Inside Out program. Um, have seen this with their students as well. And um, I I want to sort of uh, be among the people who's contributing to that effort to really raise the voices up of people who are who are incarcerated. You've so, sort of started to answer my next question, which will uh, I think will be my last question. We're almost out of time, but I know one of your goals for this project is to speak beyond the walls of the academy. I know that it's important to you to to reach a general audience. Will you say a little bit more about why that's important? Hmm. I think um, I'm, because the reason why I'm I'm drawn to being um, I think both a philosopher and a, a law professor is really to make change in the world, especially in regard to the way we treat people who have um, committed serious crime. Um, and I think, insofar as as the the way things work is is going to change, people I think. Uh, far outside of the academy um, uh, need, need to hear voices in a way that they can, they can um, really understand and, and resonate with. Um, I think I, I read a book um, called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson a while ago. I actually assigned it in a lot of my classes I think he does a wonderful job at doing this very thing that I've described, which is um, telling the, the stories of um, people who've been treated in, incredibly unjustly by our system of criminal law, telling those stories in a way that resonates with people and leaves them at the end of the book in a place of action rather than apathy. I think that movement from apathy to action is is integral to change and is um, why I do this. Well, Chris and Bell, on that note, which is a great note to end on, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with Kristen Bell, assistant professor in the University of Oregon School of Law. She is also an affiliated faculty member in philosophy. And in 2020-2022, she will be an Oregon Humanities Center faculty research fellow working on her book project, Philosophy of Punishment Behind Bars. Thanks so much for watching.